I'm looking over my notes right now for, uh, I'm reading, rereading, reading. Have you ever read, uh, Eric Hobsbawm's Age of series? No, never read any Hobsbawm. Not a singular Hobsbawm. In fact, I thought it was, if you asked me what, to pr- how to pronounce it, it'd probably be like Hobsbawm or something. Bawm. Yeah, yeah, it does have a W in there. Yeah, that's one of those weird, like, transliterations from Yiddish, I'm guessing. He was, he lived to be almost a hundred, man. He was a trooper. He was a critical theorist of some variety. No, no, absolutely not. Okay, he I did don't... not do critical. Never call him a critical theorist. Do not slander him with critical theory. He was a historian. He was oh, okay. a historian's historian. He was like, how embarrassing is it that I don't know who he is on a scale of one to ten? It's like one. It's not embarrassing okay. at all. all right. I mean, I, I said it to you as though you were supposed to know. You're you're not supposed to know. I you spent a few more years at the new school than I. Did. <laughs> I also like spent a few more years as a Marxist than you did. And if Touché. you're <laughs> if you, uh, I don't know if those things are related. If you're like uh, in the historical studies world, you know, as I was at one point, Hobbesbaum is Hobbesbaum is like this. Towering figure actually was, I think, a professor emeritus at uh, the new school in like his 90s, like mid to late 90s. You know, they got him as a, uh, I don't know, as like, I guess, a draw for Marxists who had $20,000 a year to spend on uh, on an education. But anyways, no, he wrote this uh, incredible four part uh, survey compendium of like the modern world since uh, 1789. Uh, it's a basically about the rise of capitalism. And uh, the first one's called Age of Revolution, and it's about the dual revolution, which is to say the Industrial Revolution in England and the French Revolution in France, and it's really, really good. And he goes on from there to the Age of Capital, which is from... So the first book is from 1789 to, of course, 1848, then the next one is called the Age of Capital, and I think it's into the 1870s. Then there's the Age of Empire. Then the last one's, I think, Age of Turbulence or something like that. It's about like the lead up to the world wars and shit. But um, yeah, really good stuff. Magisterial work, as they like to say about historians. It's just mm. kind of like, I, I think you would enjoy it. I think listeners would enjoy it too. Like, I, I recommend it to people who are like, I listen to you and Matt talk about all this stuff and how the hell am I supposed to know any of this I'm interested in and I want to hear more. I always recommend because it's very readable mm-hmm. and you can basically get like the grand sweep of like the history of bourgeois society. Yeah. If you're a periodization head. If you're a periodization head, you know, let Hobbesbaum periodize for you, I say. Mm. Always let somebody else periodize for you. <laughs> you don't want to do that yourself. What period are we in now? Period of... Turbulence. The age of fucked. The age of screwed. We are in. I mean, I reading this book. So, like in the age of uh, age of revolution, I'm in like the 1830s, and it's leading up to, of course, 1848, which was you know a Europe wide wave of revolutions which pop off pretty much everywhere. And an interesting moment, of course, in European and world history because it's sort of a. a continuation of the French Revolution, but it's where 
the or like the liberal aspect of the French Revolution, like attempting to overthrow feudalism and aristocracy and bring liberal values. But of course, it takes on this proletarian element because so much had changed in the last like 50 or so years since the French Revolution. And um, yeah, it's it's really interesting because in this in the 1830s where he's talking about there is like a social and moral order, as he calls it, which is the old feudal order which is under like a complete full frontal assault by bourgeois social relations. And you have all of these people trying to resist and you have this really interesting moment of transition, not just for peasants, of course, but for like the early proletariat um, where people are shocked and appalled that anybody would, you know, not only trumpet this new bourgeois Mm -hmm. society, but want to live under it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, people absolutely shocked that things like just prices and things like um, the traditional guilds that they worked under, things like the traditional rights that they understood and obligations were just going by the wayside. And very, very interesting, I think, because we're not right now in that same sort of moment because, of course, bourgeois society has, in the subsequent, what, 180 years or so, spread all over everywhere. And this is just kind of the world that we live in. But we're certainly, it feels like moving out of one moral and social order of capitalism into another. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I uh, read the, the Federici Caliban and the Witch recently, which is oh. also somewhat of a you know historical materialist work about mm-hmm. the transition of feudalism to capitalism. And the theory there is that the witch trials was this uh, immense effort to kind of destroy the peasant mentality yeah where uh, and traditional the, knowledge and things of that the sort. uh the the figure of the witch represented people you know uh, you know after a few decades of primitive accumulation who was still tied to the old ways of doing things and so if your uh fucking cow wasn't given milk you could blame this person who represented the old world mm-hmm. um and you know kill her as a sort of sacrifice to like the new way of doing things right um, which is interesting because I think, uh, you know, a long time I thought that or uh, I had the impression from both detractors of the book and fans of the book that I was about how witchcraft is cool. <laughs> but that is not what she says. She actually says that witchcraft now takes on the form of a of a, a, an, a, an affect of people who are losing yeah. their status mm. you know, of, of bourgeois or aristocratic cre- uh, people. Mm. Um, and it no longer uh, possesses any kind of threat. To yeah. capitalism, not that it, it couldn't, but that's not the point of the book. Don't tell the local witches that, man. Um, the local witch store up the street would burn you in effigy if they mm-hmm. heard you say such things. Or <laughs> yeah. if they heard Federici say such well, things. Well, you know, it's a popular book, and a lot of those stores um, stock it, so I hope people read it. Um, but especially, like, the, the first few chapters of the book talk about the, the social order, the immense, uh, conf- you know, the, uh, the peasant revolts and um, different aspects of the class war and how it played out in terms of gender in these early years of accumulation. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, it's not, all, it's not all a pretty picture, of course. A lot of it, you know, like, for example, workers would uh, sort of get revenge on their bosses by raping their uh, house servants or mm-hmm. mistresses or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and that was, to them, a form of class war. And it was a form of class war that the, uh, the bosses semi accepted because mm. it's like well you're just that doesn't affect me that much right, you yeah. know it's a bit of a problem I still me. got my factory <laughs> right like I still got my head yeah so yeah we're in a time like this right now we we're, are in a we're, time we're like seeing this. a lot of morbid symptoms new identities being forged yeah. in blood yeah. and 
unfortunately not so much here although you know we're things are things are getting bloodier all the time I mean, we're on the cusp of something. We've been saying that for years on this podcast. I feel like the, you know, the the period from the 1990s, the end of history period, of course, is ending right now. Definitely a time of monsters. I think that we want to talk about the uh, strikes today and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a little strike update. What else do we want to? We were going to do an episode or we were going to talk about Triangle of Sadness, which is a I would argue not just a communist movie, but a left communist movie. But I think we'll wait. We're, we're yeah, going to have a yeah. special guest. For I'm that glad one. we're teasing that because uh, two things. Everyone should see this movie. It's fantastic. Fantastic. If, if you like this show, you will like the movie. Big time. Um, if you like Woody Harrelson, you'll love it. He sure. plays a communist. Um, it, and if you like Gilligan's Island, you'll like the sure. movie. It's like yeah. a dark Gilligan's Island. Yeah. Like Riverdale. If you hate fashion, you, you'll love it. If you like fashion, you'll love it. If you like fashion, you'll love it. Um, but also, we want to get like an influencer guest. So if yeah. you are an influencer, influencers and hit you, us up. You want to see the movie, and you uh, you know you have something to say about it, hit us up. Yeah. Um, on Twitter or uh, antifatamindset at gmail dot com. That's it. In the meantime, you know, just as by way of introduction, I went to um, Colorado last week. Spent some time with my brother. I, I hiked up a 14,000-foot mountain. Beautiful. I love Colorado. Colorado You is, didn't bring me back the edibles. But. I didn't. I, I didn't stop at an edibles place, man. We got edibles here now. You want to, what, bespoke edi- edibles? They don't have the kind I like, the ones to, the one-to-ones. Well, I'm sorry. I was spending quality. If you're an influencer, bring me some <laughs> one-to-ones. I was spending quality time with my brother. It was really nice. Um, but got back and, you know, back to work. I got laid off from my last job I was talking about on the last news episode, and I started a new job. So I spent all day today in a stinking pit uh, 15 feet under the ground inside a 55,000-gallon oil tank from, oh. the, from the 1950s. So, so you were doing one of those jobs where uh, like a, a Republican uh, account will be like, this is what real yeah, men do. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which Imagine is what, a woman doing this. <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't actually have any women on the job, which is a shame. But we could, and they could do it, because uh-huh. I'm in there. Uh, we're like demoing these old ones and they're going to put new ones in. And I was balancing today precariously on these old steam pipes with like water f- filled with like 70 years of muck from these oil tanks up to my fucking knees. And I've got a blowtorch and I'm fucking burning stuff out and we're flying giant pieces of steel. You know, it's like a fucking pop. It's like J.D. Vance's fantasy. You know, this is what the white working class is supposed to be doing. Granted, in his world, they're not supposed to be doing it like as union members. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be doing it like a libertarian micro sort of way. But I tell you, it sounds terrible, probably the way I describe it. Really dangerous, really fucking shitty, but I love it. I'm a fucking sicko for that nice. shit. I had a great time all day. I like this job. Physically, it's a little tougher. The last job, yeah. a lot of signaling. You can't see it at home, but I'm holding my thumb up, and then I'm holding my thumb down, pointing up in the air. I'm doing the signal, boom down, hold the load, and all that stuff. So that was fun, but this job is like dirty, hands-on, getting it fucking done. Mike Rowe, eat your heart out, you bitch. I hate you. And what is uh, the end goal of this project? What are you building or making money? It's not about the outcome. It's about the income. But what's the thing? Oh, the thing that's, that's being built. Uh, I think that because these oil tanks and I, there's, they're 55,000 gallons. 
and there's six of them, and they have to be taken out. I don't think there was definitely not an EPA when they were put in. Let's put it yeah. that way. And I think that they want to put, let's say, like a, a healthier, more environmental way to have backup generation power for this public hospital. So, you know, I'm building infrastructure, building America. I guess they're going to put a fucking something nicer. They should put solar panels, to be honest. Mm-hmm. They should put something green. But whatever it is, it's supposed to be like a three-year job. So uh, I guess I could give updates as time goes on. Well, we'll see if America sticks around that long for you to Oof. finish the project. Yeah, honestly. It's looking... <laughs> like day by day at this point. Um, so in terms of strikes, there's a, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll start off first by... Um, People like strike updates, right? Yeah, and I, I do too. You know, okay. I, you know, I get about as much information as the ca- casual Twitter user or sure. browse labor notes. But, yeah. um, you know, I've never been part of an industrial union or a, a, like the sort of union that you're a part of. Um, I was only in the IWW for a minute and that wasn't, you know, I walked some picket lines, but that's like yeah. the extent of my understanding. Um, but, uh, I'm always really glad when our, our friends, our listeners on the discord, tell us about what their unions are doing or what they're interested in. And, uh, the Nana mouse, uh, I think I'm hopefully I'm saying that the right. Nana mouse. Um, said, uh, sent a link that, um, about the UC uh, academic workers strike. And they say, I think this could be the second largest strike in the past decade. They've already got a strike fund linked in the Twitter thread and we'll need lots of picket line support starting next week. If you want to support, if you're a DSA member in CA uh, in California, you want your chapter involved, DM me. Um, So that's, we'll post that in the show notes. Uh, The UC academic workers are going on strike November 14th. Is it a recognition strike or are they already recognized? I think they are recognized, and they uh, uh, it's about a thirty-five thousand member union, and Damn. they uh, voted to strike ninety-eight percent. Wow! So they are pissed. They are pissed, and they're not alone. I mean, if you look at the strike numbers across the board the last couple of years, they've all been in the mid to high nineties. There is definitely something happening in a, a a bit of a subterranean way. You know, I think that us doing the strike update is good because except for people like Jonah Furman and there's a reporter at HuffPo and there's Alex Press and great people like that who are trying to kind of revive or keep alive the great tradition of labor journalism uh, in this country, especially socialist uh, labor journalism like Alex Press is doing. Um, You know, the only time you really hear about this shit watching the... um, the mainstream media or whatever is when something like the railroad strike all of a sudden just pops up and people are like, holy shit, mm-hmm. 30% of the goods moved in this country might stop right before Christmas. And then it'll pop up and then Biden came in. This is in September, right? Yeah, we did an episode about September and they've just been edging us ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the they announced this and the unions and the White House, you know, celebrated this, oh, yeah. this big contract. And then it was basically only, you know, labor people on Twitter saying like, you, they shouldn't celebrate anything. Like yeah. the members have not gotten a chance to look at this. Right. And sure enough, one of the unions voted it down. One of them narrowly accepted it today. Fifty two percent. Fifty two percent. So, um, but edge. as far as I can tell, if one votes it down, no one will cross their picket lines, and so you need all of them. They need all of them. I think there's what sixteen unions who are all bargaining separately. God bless America. Our fucking pattern bargaining system makes this all very, very chaotic. But God bless the fucking um, railroad workers because I don't think there's much of a chance at all that the other unions would not honor a picket line if, say, like the maintenance away workers refuse to to work um, after 
um, you know, voting down the contract. Um, yeah, very, very interesting dynamic. Um, Biden, you were mentioned people celebrating on Twitter. You know, what Biden came in and did was gain, gain them what they claim were historical raises, you know, huge raises, I think like 11% over a few years. Uh, signing bonuses. I think it was going to work out to like $11,000 per worker. But people who are following this and people who understand, you know, how labor works in this country and the sort of larger dynamics at work know that, and we talked about this, it's not the money really that's the issue right now. You know, a lot of these railway, railway workers are getting up into the six figures, especially, you know, the engineers and the operators and things like that. But what is at issue, of course, is uh, something very simple, which is sick time. What is like the larger issue of this really is that similar to what Amazon has been able to do in the warehousing industry, similar to what uh, capital does in a factory setting, uh, similar to this kind of like entire, you know, we were talking about a kind of chapter of history closing. Um, what capital has tried to do in general is to turn labor into a commodity like any other. Um, we know, of course, that that's impossible because capital can't buy labor. It can only buy labor power, buy people's ability to work. It can't actually buy them. Although the Congress of the United States, as it turns out, the labor secretary, what's his name, Marty Walsh, mm -hmm. basically said that- Former we, Boston mayor. Yeah, we might have to. Congress might have to, despite the workers not ratifying this contract, shove it down their fucking throats, mm -hmm. chain them up, tie them to the fucking, to the trains for the holiday season, uh, force them back to work, and uh, basically pass an act of Congress that says you cannot strike. Mm -hmm. And we're going to settle this on our terms, on the state's terms, which I think is a pretty incredible thing. In terms of American history, things like that have happened before. I mean, famously in 1952, there was a giant, the threat of a giant steel strike during the Korean War. And Harry Truman was so afraid of the um, impending strike by the steel workers that he <laughs> passed an executive order to nationalize the steel industry, you know, because it was essential to the war effort. Mm. The Supreme Court eventually said the president can't just simply nationalize the entirety of the American steel uh, industry. You have to let it go back into private hands. And then the workers struck for like 52 days and won like massive, massive gains. Um, which you could do in the 1950s. But the point is, is that especially in railroads and things like steel, the government interven intervening in this way uh, is not rare. It's not aberrant in American history, but it, but it is in the last like 20 or 30 years or so, the government taking this kind of role. I think the last railroad strike was the 1990s in this country, right? 1992? I want to say. I, I don't recall. You don't recall? I was 12 years old. I remember like the subway strike in New York, but that's as oh, far back as my memory was, goes. That was interesting. That, yeah, was, that was fun. Cool. Yeah. I actually had to, I think I had to walk to, to work that day. Yeah, I had to walk to the World Inferno show from uh, Grand Central <laughs> down to the Ding Factory. You walked in solidarity. <laughs> Which is a you, nice walk. You weren't like like out there like uh pushing them back into the trains to <laughs> to to work to so you can see world inferno but there's also uh there's commuter strikes in the uk now like in london and in scotland too i believe um and uh and so but the i mean a strike here would be really uh really cripple the u.s economy right oh, yeah. before christmas i, I think it's like 30 percent of freight goes on rail and um, the strike is is coming up November nineteenth. If they don't if they don't renegotiate the contract, 
the Brotherhoods of Maintenance of Way Employees Division will go on walk out. November Shout 19th. out to uh, John Tormey, friend of the show, who is actually in in that union. Hell yeah, uh, and who works up in uh, New England for that. Great follow. I, yeah, um, and then uh, December fourth, the Brotherhood of Railroad Signalmen would walk out. They voted 57% against the proposed deal and uh, the members of the Signalman Union voted 60% against the deals. And so this would cripple freight travel. It would cripple Amtrak because Amtrak goes on freight rails. Right. right. And that'll be right before Christmas, the holiday season, which yeah. is so important to, you know, all the crap that the yeah. economy <laughs> needs to sell to keep moving. Yeah, yeah, totally. Especially now, right? Since we're in this weird interregnum where, like, I guess the supply chain crisis is kind of, like, working its way out through the system right now, but you still have massive inflation. It would be a huge fucking hit. I mean, the so the politics of this are really interesting because you have uh, Joe Biden, who, as we said in September, came in and personally negotiated this fucking yellow dog sellout fucking deal but, uh, of course, goes up there and is well-known among the commentariat as, like, the most pro-union administration in, uh, in American history, or so they claim. Certainly cha- have changed the composition of the National Labor Relations Board in such a way that it favors workers more than it certainly did over the last 20 years or so. But it's really funny because in this particular instance, uh, what is going to happen is that the workers' ability to strike— their, their human right to strike, to, to withhold their labor, is this incredible bargaining chip that they have, that all unions have, one that union leadership has seen fit to give away you know, over and over again through no strike clauses and whatnot, but it's still this sort of imminent threat that exists. The workers, the railway workers have the ability to shut down 30% of the circulation of commodities right before Christmas. What happens when the fucking, you know, official labor representative of the president of the United States comes out and says, you know what? If they don't accept this deal, if the workers continue to be recalcitrant, we're going to have to pass an act of Congress to chain them up and tie them to the fucking train, you know, operating levers to get uh, to keep commodities moving in this in the United States that takes so much of the bargaining power away from the unions you know who are using the threat of this strike of course to like try to impose their will upon the bosses to try to get fucking sick days right to try to be able to see their whatever their kids soccer practice be able to go to the fucking doctor mm-hmm. whatever it is this scheduling system that they put in place is like a form of slavery. It's trying to take these people and turn them into fucking cogs in the machine. They reject this. Militantly, they reject this. Now you have the Biden administration saying that we'll have to pass an act of Congress. And it really shows you the limits, the outer limits of what's acceptable um, with working class self-activity in this country, right? You can say all the shit in the world. You can say, we, we're the most pro-union administration. We're going to change the NLRB. We're going to try to raise fines for companies breaking, uh, you know, labor rules and things of that sort. We're going to pass executive orders in order to strengthen, um, say, like uh, union contracts with the federal government or whatever. But when the chips are down, that only that's only operative when it comes to actions that remain within the rubric of the state within the rubric of this sort of cozy relationship that union leadership has with the Democratic Party as a very, 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 very junior member of the shitty coalition that is the Democrats. So what's really it, it, what, 
we're facing right now is a very interesting and potentially very powerful moment where the railway workers are leading the way, um, really kind of being the forward thrust, the vanguard of this tendency we've seen over the last couple of years or so through striketober or whatever it was that people were calling it, the strike wave over the last year or so, which is a growing sort of militant autonomy, a sort of working class self-activity that's bubbling up from the rank and file. Uh, We've talked about all the different uh, various um, examples of this, Uh, the Seattle Carpenters strike where the rank and file shot down three different contracts uh, that the union had negotiated, Uh, the Kellogg strike, the fucking um, the UAW, the Caterpillar strike. In all of these instances, you have uh, militant rank and file voting in the 90s, in the 90% to strike, and shooting down contracts left and right. Um, What the railway workers might be able to do, and this is a a hope and a dream, because it would take an incredible amount of courage and bravery on their part, um, they might be able to carve out a tiny bit, a tiny speck, but maybe a very inspirational speck of uh, workers' autonomy from the state, from the apparatus. The ability in a very, very shocking and I think instructive way for all the rest of us, all the millions of union workers in this country who are similarly pissed off, similarly militant right now, facing similarly inhuman conditions on the job and fucking pissed off about it, show the way. And showing the way would be to fucking refuse to absolutely fucking refuse and just go for it. And this is the sort of thing that you wouldn't have thought you could see four or five years ago. But in this instance in December, you know, we might even see potentially some sort of wildcat actions against the Congress of the United States. So what you mean by that is, is first of all, some of these unions will disagree with the, the, the agreement uh, as they already have and reject the negotiations. There would be, um, they would attempt a, a strike uh, and have to have picket lines that other unions that have accepted it wouldn't cross. Congress, the Democratic-led Congress, because even if they're... It would be a lame duck if session. If and when the Republicans yeah. win, it would be a lame duck session, so yeah. Democrats would have to pass this legislation um, to force the workers back. I, I imagine it'll probably be a bipartisan effort, you know, really... I think it would have to be, you yeah. know, Dividing, you know... Reaching across the red blue divide, Listen, we have so the, many the differences between Republicans, Republicans and Democrats. Right. But when it comes to disciplining the American workers, hands across the aisle, right, shaking, right. hugging it out, and that's a beautiful thing. And we'll talk a little bit this about bipartisanship uh, the way one country. small town in Connecticut has come together <laughs> along yeah. those lines. Um, but okay, so Congress passes something, demanding they go back to work, demanding they accept the uh, contract, yep. and then what happens? They they say. Fuck Congress. You're in like a, I don't know, like a Syriza type situation where you got to see whether people blink or not. Of, of course, if people don't remember, the um, the people of Greece were given a referendum that said basically, do you accept the terms of the Troika or do we leave the European Union, essentially? And the people of Greece said, fuck the deal. And Syriza, the leftist, very leftist government, the radical leftist government, blinked. And they said, you know what? But this is a different situation because it's not about a mandate to the bureaucrats to negotiate. This is about whether people show up to work or not. It's a mandate. So what, like, what is the state going to do if, if people just continue to strike? 
Well, I mean, the the blink, mo- the the moment because the the union leadership has been trying in good faith to get the best contract possible. This irascible rank and file rejects it, which is like. I'm sure as upsetting to them as it is to President Biden or whatever. The moment's going to come where the mandate that the union leadership has is, of course, the rank and file on the workers. If it gets to the point where the union leadership is going to accept, you know, this this shitty yellow dog contract where the main demands of the workers are not being met, it's going to be a situation where the union leadership either says, you know, of course, we have to follow Congress or else our union gets liquidated. They bring fucking scabs in like Patco potentially liquidate our fucking unions and it's all over. Can, can they get that many scabs? I mean, this is these are Absolutely pretty technical not. jobs. And, Absolutely yeah. not. It would still if the workers continue to go out or if there was like a massive slowdown, then that is a situation where, again, you're seeing militant rank and file self-activity at like a national stage with disruptive potential that we haven't seen in this country since probably the 1970s. And again, this is speculation, but if you look at the issues at hand here and you look at all of the trends uh, among the rank and file and all of these unions, all these strikes the last year and a half or so, it's always been exactly what the left comms say and sound like fucking wingnuts in times where like there's general labor peace or there's a recession or whatever where you hear someone they'll, they'll you'll come out and i've said this before too is like the unions are only holding back the militancy of the rank and file if we could simply overthrow and overturn these bourgeois unions and build a militant rank and file class struggle union we could overthrow the bureaucrats and workers are ready to go out there and fucking fight and it's the union holding in the back normally that sounds like wingnut shit right look at the last year and a half or so it's fucking real it's real all over the place every single one of these strikes that we've seen has been a union leadership of various stripes because it's all sorts of different unions that have been involved in this strike wave holding back the workers 98 percent ratification for strikes in the um the stagehands union Uh, There was a massive ratification for a strike and they still didn't even fucking strike. They held back the activity, the self-activity of the rank and file. So all the shit that sounds like wingnut stuff in normal times, you know, times of labor peace, times when the social question, when the labor question is not up in the air, it sounds like crazy shit. But if you look at it right now, it is literally the dynamic that's happening. Um. But do you think it's more likely that there would be this, like, industry-wide wildcat, like, defying the law, defying union leadership? Or is it more likely that the comparative minority of workers who have rejected this deal just get hung out to dry? That's probably the more likely thing. That's what I... Yeah, so that's... Like, I love to hear us, like, talk about Matic vindicated and, (laughs) you know, left come is the truth. Um, But, uh, and you know, that stuff happens sometimes. It does, yeah. But I feel like, uh, you know, it's just, it's it's so hard to get hundreds of thousands of workers to, obviously they've been pushed so so far that it's always possible, but um, I think what's more likely is that uh, they'll get a little bit of a better deal. Yeah, yeah, and and even Congress might even say like, all right, the raises that that were negotiated for you, you get them, and we'll give you a sick day, and it'll seem like some sort of victory, and people, and you know, something like that will probably end up happening. But we keep, there's like this entire 
labor discipline, labor management regime, this sort of corporatism between capital and labor that the trade unions, especially in the United States uh, with our labor law, represent. And we keep over the last year and a half or so getting up to the edge where something uh, path-breaking could happen, right? And this is another one of those moments mm-hmm. where... Where it could happen. Well, at least could, there's a chance for it to happen. There's more of a chance of it happening now than, than probably in decades. Um, and always, again, it's impossible for us because I'm not a railway worker. I know one railway worker, and I just know him through the internet. Mm-hmm. He's John. What's up, John? I hope you're feeling better. Um, you know, with a lack of labor reporting, with a lack of, like, on-the-ground shit, we can only really know by these ratification votes, and we can only kind of know by some sort of vague, like, sociological understanding of what's happening with the Great Resignation and with, like, all the anger that came out of the, the whatchamacallit, uh, essential workers shit, people mm-hmm. who work through the fucking pandemic and whatever, um, and just the real anger of the working class right now, inflation and all that stuff. The point is, is that these are the sort of moments that capital keeps throwing up, you know, that capital on the state keeps throwing up these like moments in time where an ability to break through the impasse of the Taft Hartley system becomes possible. You know, another, another instance of this was um, the Scott Walker shit in Wisconsin in 2011. Mm -hmm. You had a militant, militant rank and file occupying the Capitol you had a, a weird sort of cooperation between union leadership and the Democrats where, remember, the Democrats fled the state to refuse to right, vote right. on the, they couldn't get a quorum to do the right to work thing. And you had the Central Labor Council there basically sending out the feelers and, and voting on um, preparing for a general strike. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, was this incredible moment. Me watch, watching from New York City, I knew people, fucking labor people, like bussing out there to go be part of this incredible moment. Um, you basically reached a fork in the path where mm-hmm. the path that was chosen was that union leadership dropped the general strike tactic, which would have included Lord knows how many, basically all public sector workers probably, and like massive amounts of industrial and service workers, basically shutting the entire state down. Again, a path breaking, like fucking quantity to quality type moment. Um, and instead, of course, what's, what happens is they manage to deflate and demoralize this really militant, radicalized rank and file and get everything, all of the energy. And people will tell you, people who are there will, will tell you, all the energy gets put into recall. Recalling Scott Walker. Recalling the Scott electoral Walker. Route. The electoral route. Yeah. And every, all the momentum there. This possibility in 2011 where we could have had, yeah, like... Imagine the last 10 fucking years of austerity um, with quantitative eating at the same time of like of just the, the, the screws fucking turned under Obama and Trump. Um, imagine if you had this sort of spectacular and incredible path breaking moment of not just a general strike, but potentially a general strike victory a political general strike victory mm-hmm. in a state in the United States and the sort of momentum that would have come out of that could have changed the entire dynamic of American yeah, life and, and politics. Yeah, and for it to start with uh, occupation, too. Right. Like, right after Occupy, um, or was it before Occupy? It was before Occupy. It was after the student occupation movement. In and UC. Bef- and before yeah. Occupy Wall Street. And during the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. So all of this, so all of these complaints about Occupy Wall Street 
being like a student led thing and like a middle class thing doesn't didn't really have any connections except sort of symbolically to organized labor. Imagine if instead that that Scott Walker moment that had turned into a sort of synthesis of the sort of Occupy Wall Street, like forgive debt sort of demands with like a militant working class component that had just come off a potentially successful general strike in Wisconsin and showed the sort of imminent power of labor. Things could have gone completely differently. So, this is, But this is why I'm, I'm somewhat pessimistic because I've seen these, uh, these opportunities come and go so often. A few years after this was uh, this massive student strike in Montreal in Quebec. Right, Qu- I Quebec, remember. Not yeah. just Montreal, but throughout Quebec. Um, it was, you know, it took the form of like a student insurrection at a certain point. So it was yeah. like May 68 there. And what they ended up deciding to do was, you know, have a snap election, get the left wing party in power. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was like almost a complete failure. I think yeah. that party won, but it didn't change anything. But it demobilized the movement. And uh, just this, uh, just today in Canada, there was this very inspiring strike of workers in Ontario organized through CUPE, C-U-P-E. I'm not sure what that stands for. Do you it's know? Uh, French for cope. <laughs> no, it's well, it's, on, it's Ontario, so it's probably oh, not. Yeah, okay. It's uh, Anglo but, for uh, cope. <laughs> but yeah, so so CUPE um, is seeking a salary increase of 11.7 percent for its workers. They make thirty nine thousand dollars a year. And the uh, and the the Ford administration, Doug Ford, has imposed a contract that would give them a two point five percent annual raise um, to workers making less than forty three thousand, and one point five percent for all others. Well, and they imposed this on them, yeah, um, through legislation. And so they're they're going to say, "Fuck the legislation, we're going to strike." And just today, uh, you know, union leadership says, "Good news, Doug Ford has blinked." Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to withdraw that legislation, stop protesting, go back to work. The and and power I'm of seeing labor. a lot of, you know, it might just be the people I follow on Twitter, but people who are up there saying, well, he hasn't done it yet. Yeah. he's. We know he's a liar. We know he does not intend to negotiate with us. Why are we stopping now when we have all this momentum just based on a promise he's made? Right. And the answer is because it's like, you know, it's difficult for a labor bureaucracy to maintain a strike and a protest. And, oh, for sure. You know, they they want to be at the negotiating table. That's of where course. they that's where they're trained to that's where they're trained to fight. That's where they're trained. Exactly. That's exactly right. And you know, if we if if you're losing hope and you're cynical about it, which is probably for the best, considering as you say, all these different like um, failures that we've seen over the last ten years or so. I mean, there was an instance, we did see an instance in the United States of America of workers making that leap, that leap into the dark, that leap into the abyss. And that was, of course, the wildcat uh, teacher strike in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that. Oh, that was incredible. Because they didn't have a right to strike and they fucking took the right to strike and they fucking won. Right. And that sort of comes like right at the beginning of this wave that we're talking about pre, pre-pandemic or whatever. It, so it, at least in that instance, and of course... The social context of teachers versus railroad workers is completely different. This was before the essential workers shit, before inflation or whatever. But we have seen, at least in this one instance, of workers taking that leap. And so the question is, as we said in the very beginning, as we move into a different period, as the 1990s, the dream of the 90s dies, not just in Portland, but also like across the country, this sort of Clintonian, Blairite, neoliberal end of history, as that dies and as something new is being born, the possibility 
the stochastic possibility uh, that one of these breakthroughs happens again and happens with the sort of momentum that we've seen, I think, increases every time. So maybe it's not going to be this railway strike. Maybe the workers will be made to have they, the contract will be shoved down their fucking throats and they'll be tied to the wheel and they'll fucking go on without their sick days or with one sick day or whatever. But as the labor regime in the United States, as the Wagner Taft hardly labor regime continues to over and over and over again, not just in terms of the labor bureaucracy and its inability to really break through and become a movement again, but just in terms of providing real gains for workers who in the United States now, like positive sentiment about unions is what, 76% of people? The mismatch between what people need materially, what they want, what they're willing to fight for, and what the union, what the labor regime in the United States can actually give is so big right now that the possibility of one of these breakthroughs, I think, grows and grows and grows and grows. But uh, conversely, also growing is the possibility that the state uh, and capital will just say, fuck it, we're not doing this NLRB thing anymore. We are no longer going to recognize unions. We are now going to impose these through force, through legislation. And it, you know, at that point, it will only be up to the workers and the unions to fight. And this is, I think, what's coming down with the Starbucks stuff. Because and Amazon, too, if you, if you listen to any of Chris Small's recent interviews, which are really fascinating mm. to interview. Chris Small's is, of course, the, the organizer of the Amazon Workers United who's like very blatant that he's like going after Amazon. Hell you know? yeah. He's not saying like, we need a fair deal between right. the workers and Amazon. His, his name he's is still like Bezos, I'm shut coming down for Amazon. Yeah. You know? Fuck him up. And, and, and it's really fascinating to listen to him because he's like, look, I'm, I'm not a labor organizer. I'm just a mad, I'm like a really pissed off worker. And, uh, he, and he, he, when he's doing these interviews, he's talking about what he's learning day by day. Mm. And he's, He's describing um, very concisely the way Amazon is is just breaking the law day by day. And, uh, you know, Chris Malls is talking to Marty Wash or people mm. at NLRB saying, or Sarah Nelson, what do we, you know, what are we supposed to do if Amazon's just going to break the law like this? Or like, they'll say like, well, you know, the NLRB doesn't have enough money to enforce this. Yeah, and they've been saying that. And so we while. have to get like, you know, more more Democrats in Congress. <laughs> right. to fund. So it's like the same old bidding its wheels and going nowhere. And meanwhile, it seems as though Schultz, and I'm sure Bezos is considering this too, are preparing to take a case to the Supreme Court to just end this nonsense. Yeah. Once yeah. and for all. Yeah. No more NLRB. No more uh, protections yeah. of people's, you know, if, if you are trying to organize a union, they can fire you. Go back to There's the There's no reason the Supreme Court can't say that. Back to the 19th century laissez-faire regime. If you right. look at what the Trump administration, which their policy, plat like what they actually did in office was pretty much bog standard ass Republican shit with a couple of tariffs on China. If you look at what the what the future would look like as we, I wouldn't even say if we, but as we continue down the track we're going, it is to return to not just the laissez-faire night watchman state, um, sort of state subsidized like railroad capitalism of the 19th century, but also, as you say, the real possibility that in our lifetimes, an event that would be as shocking as, but also as possible as the overturn of Roe versus Wade, which is for this retrograde uh, Supreme Court to start striking down the National Labor Relations Act, you know, to start basically gutting American labor law and take us back to the 19th century. And what do I say to that? 
If you want the 19th century, motherfuckers, bring it. <laughs> I swear to fucking God, yeah. if you want the 19th century back, if you want the great railroad strike, you want the fucking Pullman strike, you want those days back, bring it, motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Because when I, I was like, all oh, left com shit, fucking holding back the struggle, if they want to take us to that place, if they really want to take us to that place, I say fucking the, this labor regime is to the point now where what is it less than what 5% of public sector union uh, workers are even in a union right now and declining despite all this strike activity unions are dying, you know, by like by attrition anyways. So if they want to take that fucking leap, I say that could be the best thing that fucking happens. Honestly, I will lose my pension. I will lose my annuity. I will basically have to start over with my fucking career. My union will likely be destroyed. It will be absolute fucking disaster for me personally and millions upon millions of other people. It's not a choice that I would say we take. We shouldn't be accelerationists and say, let's go fucking smash up the National Labor Relations Act. But this is the direction in which it's going. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. If it's going to be naked class warfare without the state standing in between us let's start doing 19th century shit let's start going back to fucking 1870s all right when railway workers didn't have congress coming and putting fucking contracts down their throat they were facing the full brunt of railroad capital themselves fucking smashing up cities from fucking st louis all the way up to to pennsylvania basically a rolling general strike across this country if that's the world they want then fucking bring it i say yeah, and there's this idea that, you know, workers don't fight this way anymore because they've become too comfortable. Uh, and, you know, to a certain extent, that's true. Like, the, the you know, the, these major victories that we're talking about and the history of, of class struggle have made uh, certain workers very well off, as they should be. Yes, of um, course. Uh, but the, the same is also true the other way, where... Um, so many people see class struggle today and their, uh, their response to it is, why are these people complaining? Why aren't they serving me as quickly and as conveniently as, (laughs) as I want them to be? And again, we see, uh, an interesting story, uh, um, the Starbucks uh, about thing. Starbucks. Before yeah. we go to the Starbucks okay. thing, let me give you an anecdote that happened just fucking yesterday in the sure, shanty. Sure. All right. We're sitting in the shanty. Remind, remind people what the shanty the is. The shanty is the place where you take your break. It's basically like a a, a shipping container which they put benches in. It's mm-hmm. where everybody sits and you get out of the elements and you take your coffee or your lunch. We're sitting there. There's the old timer who's in my local. His family's been in the fucking union for three generations. He's got a nice house. He's there showing me and everybody pictures of his fucking boat. Meanwhile, there's the Guyanese immigrant guy and there's the laborer guy who like got a bunch of tough fucking breaks who don't have a boat and who don't have a house. So while this guy's showing pictures, oh, this is my 24 footer, you know, this is me fishing or whatever. The two other guys are having a conversation about non-union capitalists coming and taking our fucking work. The Guyanese guy, I won't even say on the fucking podcast, uh, at least on this side of a paywall, what he wants to do to the politicians <laughs> who are allowing this to happen because uh-huh. I don't want to get him or me in trouble. Right, right. While the he was other, exercising his free speech. He let's was just ex- say that. Let's just say he was proposing Second Amendment solutions uh-huh. for his union <laughs> and his livelihood being taken away. While the other guy, the labor, is talking about finding where these non-union capitalists scumbags fucking live. And, and so on the one hand, you have this conversation happening and then you have the comfortable 
you know, guy who's closer to retirement, who's talking about his boat or whatever. And the Guyanese guy is never going to have the fucking boat. The laborer guy is never going to have the boat. I'm not going to have the fucking boat because I'm not a boomer. You know, I didn't grow up in this fucking beautiful, lovely era that this guy managed to accumulate all this fucking property. You can have one of those little boats. I could have like maybe one of the styrofoam ones with a fucking yeah, like the, sail like, a, on like, it. like those sunfish. drone boats you can uh, yeah. like those RC boats. Yeah, like the the little piece of paper that you like fold I'll get you up one of those and you for put Christmas. it. In That'll the, be a cute little yeah, hobby that's for sweet. you. Yeah, and I can show it to the guy in the shanty, and he'll be like, "Oh, you're on your way, kid." You can take a, a picture of the boat that makes it look much bigger. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, but the point of this story is not just to like. You know, say, uh, you know, wow, people are crazy in the building trades. Boy, it's to say that there is like even within unions, even within the working class, becoming a separation and a gulf between those who have got theirs and a younger generation and increasingly in construction, an immigrant generation who is not getting that and is fucking steaming mad. And as the ones who have got theirs attrition out. You know, and it's only the fucking young and the pissed off and the angry and the militant who are left. You know, things might potentially change in that comfort category that you were talking about. I mean, inshallah, right? We can fucking hope. Right. And um, yeah, so so transitioning that Starbucks story and we'll probably we'll probably talk about this more behind the paywall. But yeah, I'll just mention one other labor action that's happening right now. The uh, our local Starbucks, Starbucks in Williamsburg on uh, North 7th and Bedford mm. is on strike. And um, they have a strike fund. I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, there's been pickets there pretty regularly. And I have been watching the the North Brooklyn Community Facebook group. Mm. And most people in the group are supportive. Sure. Because Good liberals, yeah. Why not? Yeah. Um, and yeah, like, why would you not be supportive? You can get coffee anywhere you want. It's, right. You can go to a different Starbucks even. Sure. But uh, some people are upset. Just, just the fact that workers are organizing uh, for any reason pisses them off. And one, one of the people in this group said, they're, they're pouring coffee. What do they, what do they expect? $25 an hour? Wait, was this a MAGA communism account or just a normie? <laughs> I think it was uh, a normie, and I clicked on her account, and she appears to uh, own some sort of consulting business. Sure, that sounds about right. Um, and I responded... Well, I Googled what they want and here are their demands and I just pasted it and and it just doesn't matter. Like they don't, it's it's not about um, whether, what workers deserve or what they're going through. People just want workers to submit. To shut up. Yeah. To make their fucking latte. And a great example of that is what's going on in this Connecticut town. Let me see if I can get the audio. Connecticut. Yeah. This might've been an older story when I posted this and it went very viral guys twitter's not dead yet elon musk has not killed twitter because i can throw off a tweet that i you know in five seconds you, oh so I yeah can, this is from yeah. may 4th 2021 so yeah. hopefully there was a little thing on there calling you fake news and saying <laughs> that the story's old but still it's relevant to what we're talking about yeah um but i just uh, let's just describe it and I'll, I'll plug in the audio yeah cool yeah, so what was it? Uh, basically, in Trumbull, Connecticut, which is like a blue state, because we're supposed to think of these things in terms of red states and blue states. So in a very blue state here in Connecticut, the people of Trumbull voted to what? To speed up the line at the drive through right? So, yeah, there's a, a Starbucks drive through and um, during busy hours, you know, maybe uh, 10 cars go in there, and then 
that's so many cars that the cars are then going out into the street. And if it gets to 15, 20 cars, which it often does, apparently, it creates a traffic jam. So mm. the Planning and Zoning Commission of this town um, met and said, well, what are we, what are we going to do about this? Yeah, sure. And somebody proposed. Um, <laughs> let me see what the quote is. Get that poll quote, baby. What I would like to recommend is that we write them a formal letter saying that we feel they are not adequately moving people <laughs> through the line. And during peak hours, they should develop a plan to allow people to put an order in and move head, it, and move head into the line to deliver to relieve the backup on White Plains Road and in the parking lot. I think they could do that. It doesn't have to be a redesign of the parking lot. I think you just have to have extra people during peak <laughs> hours figuring out a way to move people quicker. Um, and this is what they eventually did. They sent out a, a, a message to that Starbucks. They made a pass a resolution saying, you guys have to work harder. You have to work harder, yeah. Uh, you know, which it seems like to me, you know, maybe this isn't the most anti-carceral solution, <laughs> but you could have you could have the police write tickets to people for blocking traffic yeah. and not parking in the parking lot that always has enough spaces and going into the restaurant. Yeah, just walking going in into and the Starbucks. And ordering and like right. leaving and leaving and, and getting out of your BMW SUV for like three minutes to order it in person. You could do that. Or you could use the whip hand of the city of the, the town of Trumbull, the whip hand to discipline the workers and make them work harder and faster. I made a joke. I made the quip. Well, I, I of course, I tweeted that the. America's petty bourgeoisie is the most retrograde class formation in world history, which might be true, actually. Certainly, if you look at like the consequences of what America's uh, middle class uh, has done to this great world of ours, I think that is, there's a case to be made for it. But I also jokingly said that this is basically like this is exactly what American democracy was based on, what our fucking constitution was based on. This is like the telos, right? Because not to channel like my inner matt chrisman and start yelling about hogs and shit but like basically like having a subordinated class of laborers to do things as fast as you want them to and do them under the conditions that you choose is literally like the 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 the, the basis of american democracy mm -hmm. not just in terms of the south with slavery but of course later on and with all the constitutional before the national labor relations act all the constitutional and supreme court rulings that came down that said labor it is your right to to use and abuse the labor, the commodity labor power as much as you want in this country. You know, the Lochner court basically said that human labor is a commodity and there's nobody's right, certainly not that labor is right, to stop you from using it in a way that you see fit. Of course, that was in an employment situation, but as we see in Trumbull, the real gift of American democracy is under like a class dictatorship that, uh, that is basically um, called a, a, a democracy, the gift of democracy is to use your the power of the state in order to make workers submit, work faster, work under conditions of your choosing, whether you're a capitalist or whether you're just, I, I dare I just say a Karen, all right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking Karens here. I know there's a couple of years after you're supposed to start talking about Karens, but you got a bunch of upper middle class probably white people, not that that matters all that much, who are basically like have everything they could possibly want. What we just need is want a, the workers to shut up and work harder for them. We need a Karen carpool lane. 
We do. If we can just get two or three Karens together in the car and they combine their order, yeah. then, uh, you know, the just the, the whole line will be moving faster. Sounds collectivist, And there dude. could be a, a subsidized, you know, you can get like a 20% off or, you're, or you're, fourth it, drink free, something like that. What you're doing dangerously is proposing some sort of collective solution to uh-huh. a labor problem. <laughs> just do it. So what, what are they going to have, like public transportation to go to Starbucks? Uh-huh. Now you've completely lost the town of Trumbull, all right? They're not even going to put in like low-income housing, let alone They have to subsidize Uber Eats for the Starbucks. All right. So a very private right. solution, like a tech solution. See, a tech solution would probably work in Trumbull. I, mm-hmm. I think if you get like, yeah, some sort of like, you know how like Uber Eats and Seamless or whatever it tries to just disguise and hide the whole labor component to the entire thing. If you could simply make it so that the workers didn't exist and it seemed like just a complete like technological fix to the thing while some worker in India is like moving a, a little joystick that makes the latte or whatever, that would probably solve the problem. <laughs> oh, <great>. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll just pretend is AI making the latte. It is your right as a not only a resident of Trumbull, Connecticut, Trumbull or Connecticut, or the of course the United States of America, it is your right to have that blue hair shut the fuck up and make you a latte. <laughs> All right. Well, I've got another uh, couple spicy uh, takes and stories to share, but we're going to do that behind the paywall. I got heated there, man. I guess I'll try to stay heated behind the paywall so people yeah. go sign up for our Patreon. You've and got some more fucks show. to give, I think. Yeah, um, so, probably. yeah, please support the show. Patreon.com slash the Antifada. Uh, you can sign up for $5 a month or you can get a monthly sign up which we always really appreciate and get like something like a 20% discount yeah um for the yearly you mean yeah for the yearly Yearly, right and if you do that or if you're a current patron or if you're just a fan write us on patreon please with your mailing address and i will send you a a letterpress postcard from our friends at radix media which is a union collective print shop and i'll send you some stickers and a thank you note and um anyone can take us up on that so patreon.com slash the Antifada. And so the full episode uh, will be on the Patreon. And this is the end of the uh, partial episode All for right. the fans.fm. So, so thanks for long. listening. Thank you, folks. See you on the other side. Yeah.